Still in Daniel chapter 9, we're going to pick up at verse 23 as we march onward in our understanding of the Mara of the 2300 days. Again, at the beginning of their supplications, we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So here's the answer. Verse 24. 70, what's that word? Weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to do what? To finish transgression. This is a time of probation, right? For your city, your people, the very thing that Daniel was praying about in his confession and his repentance, he said 70 weeks now are given or determined, and we're going to come back to that word in a moment, determined for your people and your holy city to finish transgression. And it continues, to make an end of what? Sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. All those things Daniel was saying we were guilty of. He's like, you're going to have time to get it right now. To bring in everlasting righteousness. And now look at these next ones. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint whom? The most holy. Now there's a lot of interesting things in there. I want to bring to your attention one other Hebrew word. And that's chapter, 20, uh, chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined. The word there is chazak. Again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and I'm sure somebody could say it better. I'm sure it's very guttural, but it means, it's not just determined, but it means cut off or amputated. A butcher uses it. You want to have a leg, you chazak it, right? You determine it, cut it off. Set its limit. There it is. Whack. Draw a line and separate, right? To dissect, to take apart. Now that's important because he said 70 weeks are determined or cut off, some versions say, for you and your people. Now we'll, we'll bring this in in just a moment, but you can only cut something off of a bigger thing, right? That means it's attached to something. It's a part of something larger, and you're going to take this piece out of it. Now, that's important. But he says here, 70 weeks are cut off, are determined for you and your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal a vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, from our study, giving us the decoder information for Bible prophecy, Bible time prophecies, we learn that in Bible prophecy, a day equals a literal what? Year. Okay? And we said if there was a prophecy of one week, it would literally be seven years, right? So what if we had a prophecy of two weeks? 14 years. You're seeing how this works. So you just take whatever the number is and multiply it by seven. So if you have 70 weeks, how many literal years is that? 490. And he says 490 years are cut off. When the question is automatically begged, cut off from what? Well, let's think about it. There was a time prophecy that Daniel did not understand. Correct? 
And it was the Mera of the 2300 years. So there's this massively long time prophecy. The Bible's longest prophecy. 2300 years. 2300 days. 2300 literal years. And he says 70 weeks. The answer to when does this start is 70 weeks of that is cut off. Now, let me ask you a logical question. In order for this 70 weeks to be an answer to the 2,300 days, what did we need to have the 2,300 days make sense? We needed a starting point, a beginning point, right? So could you cut out those 70 weeks from just anywhere along the prophecy? No. You couldn't make it the last 70, right? No, that doesn't work. You can't make it from the middle. It has to be... Starting point. So that if we get the starting point of the 70 weeks, and it's a special time set apart for a special purpose for you and your people, that also is the beginning of the 2300 years. The whole purpose of Gabriel's visit and the giving of this 70-week prophecy is to help Daniel understand what he didn't understand about the 2300 days. Namely, when does it begin? So here he's given the key. Now, we still don't know, because your next question is, well, when do these 70 weeks start? Now, we've got two time prophecies with no starting point. But if he gives us a starting point to the 70 weeks, then we have our starting point for the 2,300 days. Are we with me so far? All right, let's continue on. Seal up vision and prophecy. What does he mean by that? Again, home base is going to be Daniel chapter 9. But go over to the New Testament, page 995, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start with verse 18. The seal of vision and prophecy, the fulfillment of vision and prophecies would come relative to this 70 weeks. What does this mean? Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 18. This is Jesus at the very beginning, the very outset of his public ministry. He goes into his hometown of Nazareth. And we'll just start with verse 16 to get a little bit more context. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet whom? Isaiah. And notice this. And when he had opened the book, he found the place. Was Jesus looking for something specific in Isaiah? Yes. He was handed the book. Then he opens it up. And then he... And this is a scroll, right? So you have to... So he's looking for something very specific. Aha, there it is. And then he reads this passage from Isaiah. Which, by the way, comes from Isaiah chapter 61. If you ever want to look it up, it's still in the same Bible. The same Bible Jesus had is the one you have. Because he quotes it. You can check. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has what? Anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now watch this. So far, it's just a scripture reading. 
But then Jesus adds something that kind of fries everybody's brain. Verse 20. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now he must have read this in a way that those first person nouns like he is appointed me, I, right? Christ read that like it was him the book was talking about. And everybody's eyes are locked on him as if they're asking, does he think that means him? And you can almost imagine, I know what everyone's thinking. Let me just clear it up for you. Look what he says. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. That scripture you've been looking forward to, that coming Messiah, the anointed one, to set at liberty the captives, to recovery of sight to the blind, the gospel to the poor, that's me. Well, that's a powerful sermon, by the way, isn't it? We read scripture, and then he says, all of that is me. Have a good day. Did he get their attention? Absolutely. What is Jesus claiming? He said, I am the Messiah. The one that all those prophecies have been pointing to. I'm the fulfillment of those things. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I've come to do what? To fulfill. I am it. I'm the fulfillment of all those prophecies, all the law, everything that's been pointing forward. I am the culmination of that. Now think about this from Daniel chapter 9 perspective. 490 years are determined for you and your people. This is the Jewish people, the Israelite, those who are called by my name, God says, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to bring an end to, to seal up vision and prophecy. And notice what else to do. To anoint the most holy. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus fulfills this as well. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. Jesus begins his public ministry by being baptized. By the way, not because he needs remission of sins. Amen? But as an example for us, and to fulfill, he says, all righteousness. It has to be because it has to be. That's why I'm doing it, because God said so. And it says here in verse 16, And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God himself signifies the ministry of Jesus by saying, This is my Son, sending out the Holy Spirit and anointing him for the beginning of his ministry. Thus, Jesus can say, this is me. I am the anointed one. Acts chapter 10. After Jesus left, completed his ministry, and went back into heaven. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Notice what they explained to the Gentiles about who this Jesus was. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with what? Holy Spirit. And with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them. 
Jesus begins his ministry with baptism with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and the rest of his ministry is an evidence that he is who he claims to be. Just like Isaiah 61 says, to recovery of sight to the blind, to setting loose the captives. He says, I've been anointed for this work, so he is anointed, and he goes about doing the good work. He fulfills those scriptures. Friends, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is pointing to the first coming of Jesus. It's a powerful thought. Now, think about this. You might already be there. This 70-week prophecy is anticipating the first coming of Jesus. But this entire prophecy is an answer to the question about the second coming of Jesus. The whole thing hinges on Jesus. It centers on Jesus. It begins with his first coming, the anointing to his ministry to do the work that prophecy said he would do. But that's just the beginning of a much larger prophecy that culminates with his high priestly work of judgment in preparation for a second coming. It's amazing to me how Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9 tie together the entire ministry of Jesus on our behalf. From the lamb who was slain, who has lived the perfect life, then die, well, we'll just keep, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But you see the bookends of Christ's ministry from his first coming to his second coming are wrapped up in these visions of Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 9 again. This time, verse 25. Know therefore and understand. If the Bible says to know something and to understand it, what should we do? Know it and understand it. Don't just hear it. Don't just pass by. He said, this is something you need to know and understand. And I'm guessing Daniel paid attention. He'd been waiting to understand. Know therefore and understand. That from what? The going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until whom? Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now what's seven plus 62? 69 weeks. Now the whole prophecy that he's been given is how long? 70 weeks. And apparently, Messiah the Prince would come at 69 weeks. But you notice something else that we've been given here? You might have just flown right past it. The thing we've been waiting, two visions to see. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That, friends, is the starting point. He says, know and understand. I've come to give you understanding. That one thing you didn't know is the starting point. Now understand this. From the going forth of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, 69 weeks of this first 70 weeks is for you and your people to get your stuff together because your Messiah is coming. Your Messiah is coming to you. And on the 69th week out of the 70 he will show up and begin his ministry. By the way, this really, really, really helps resolve a few questions you might have had when you studied the life of Christ. I'm assuming you know something about the life of Jesus, but his public ministry didn't begin until the age of 30. You ever wonder what was he doing for the other 29 years? 
For instance, it, the Bible tells us very, very little about his early life. It's, you know, we know about his birth. We hear about it every Christmas season, right? And we know that the Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And we have one episode from his childhood recorded in Scripture, and that's at the age of 12 when he attends his first Passover and he sees the lamb slain and he realizes that is me. And he leaves his earthly mother and father. Doesn't leave them, they leave him actually. He's still right, in the temple, right? And he is wowing the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and the, and, and the, the, the scribes, those the people who know the law, the lawyers. And I don't mean, you know, Esquire. I'm talking about the law of God. And here's this young whippersnapper, this little fledgling, coming out of Nazareth of all places, literally schooling the wise men of that age. And when Mary and Joseph come to him, it's like, why have you done this to us? And his answer is, in a very respectful tone, but he says, do you not know that I have to be about my father's business? Now, that's not a disrespect to Joseph, but Joseph was simply his caretaker here on earth. But his real father, he was sent from heaven to do a work, yes? He said, how do you not know? I have to be. Did Christ see his mission even at the age of 12? Sure. But that story closes that after that, he goes back home with his parents. And think about this. He's 12 years old. His ministry doesn't start until age 30. For 18 more years, the Bible simply records, and he was subject to them. Why didn't Jesus begin his ministry at age 12 or 13 or maybe when he turned 18 or when there was some, some nice milestone? Why did he wait another 18 years and then only have a three-and-a-half-year ministry? I mean, Jesus' public ministry lasted for three-and-a-half years, but his life was 33-and-a-half years. Why did he wait? Thank you. Over and over, you read in Jesus' ministry, he would say, my time has not yet come. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus knew the prophecies about the Messiah? Absolutely. Do you think he had studied it? He's like, realize, wait a minute, I was born in Bethlehem. I was raised in Nazareth and... And he starts putting the pieces together, and, and he knows what he's about at a much younger age than he begins his ministry. But he also knows there is a time in God's calendar when it's the right time to begin. Mm. Think about this. Daniel chapter 9 is the only place in Scripture that gives us the time of the first coming of Jesus. And the first coming of Jesus is the starting point, this prophecy about this first coming that unlocks the secret of his work just prior to his second coming. It's a powerful thought. Don't miss it. But let's keep going now. Again, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks, the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. The command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. What's fascinating about this is that very command, word for word, the actual document is recorded in the Scripture for us. You can find it in Ezra chapter 7. I wish we had time to read the whole thing. We simply do not. 
But if you want to take a look at it, it's in Ezra chapter 7, page 450 in your pew Bible. In Ezra chapter 7, the decree of Artaxerxes goes forth. By the way, did Artaxerxes rule over the kingdom of Babylon or over the kingdom of Medo-Persia? Medo-Persia. There's another good reason, by the way, why Daniel chapter 8 doesn't begin with the kingdom of Babylon. Because the prophecy that Daniel chapter 8 is there to give, the 2300 years, begins in the time of Medo-Persia. And Daniel chapter 8 is all about this cleansing of the sanctuary vision. That's why there's only two animals instead of four, and they're both clean animals, and they're used on the Day of Atonement. It's trying to get you to think about this particular prophecy. And here we read in Ezra chapter 7, the letter of Artaxerxes. You begin in verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings. Well, that's a pretty pompous name, but he continues on. <laughs> to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth, <laughs> etc., whatnot. Anyway, I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you were being sent by, king, by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas, by the way, apparently they had legalese all the way back then too, right? And whereas, verse 16, all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered to the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and the drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. This is the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So those people who were the captors are now setting them free, and not only this, they're financing the whole endeavor. I would love to get a lever from this, like this, from the government at some point. I know I'm not holding my breath. But if they say, now you go do what you feel the Lord leading you to do, and we'll give you all the money you need. Cool. <laughs> no, what was verse 18? And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. That's a pretty nice captor, huh? This is the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. They didn't just let them go, but they financed their way. They cleared the path. In fact, if you were to keep reading, he says, now I'm going to send, send along this letter that if anybody gives you hassle, they're going to deal with me. I'm going to give you safe passage. Anybody who wants to go can go, and all the money you need is provided. You go back and you rebuild Jerusalem. That's the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We have the very document. It's recorded in Scripture, and we happen to know what year that occurred. The year was 457 B.C., 457 years B.C., the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Again, Nehemiah records the rebuilding of the walls in troublesome times. I wish we had time. We don't have time to go through it, but he talks about how the people rebuilding the wall had to carry their tools in one hand and the weapons in another hand, right? There were people trying to fight and discourage this, but it got accomplished because God had ordained that it would. And God's will is going to go forward. So back in Daniel chapter 9, we continue reading. Now with verses 26 and 27. 
Notice this carefully. And after the 62 weeks, right? Now this is the 62 weeks plus the, you know, he said 7 plus 62. So at the end of that 62 or the 69th week, right? Messiah shall be what? I thought the Messiah was going to come and rule the world, right? According to this prophecy, what's going to happen to him? He's going to be cut off. So right after his ministry begins, it ends. But not for whom? Who is he cut off for, friends? For me, for you, for us. For the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now what shall happen? It goes on to say. Let's go down to verse 27. I want to show you something. If we had time, I would show you how chapter verses 26 and 27 are so important that in Hebrew they were written, or in the language they were originally written in, they were written in what is known as a chiasm. It's a special form of poetry. You notice in your Bible it probably lays out these words differently, right? Because it's a form of poetry. It's very distinct in its writing. And what you basically see is verses 26 and 27 go together in a fascinating way. So that 26 actually corresponds, look at verses 26 and 27 here, as they're recorded in the study guide, okay? I've broken that chiasm down and put the two agreeing parts next to each other. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. He shall confirm a covenant with many for how long? For one week. Now notice this. He will show up at the end of the 62 weeks or the 69th week of the 70-week of the prophecy. How many weeks are left? One. And during that week, or how many years is one week of prophecy? Seven years. During that seven-year span, he will confirm the covenant with many for one week. But now notice what it adds. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. I'll ask you two questions. What event brought an end to sacrifice and offering? The cross, right? He being the antitypical lamb of God, right? A type is simply a shadow. The antitype is the fulfillment. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And upon his death, all of those things that foreshadowed his death became void because he was the real thing. He had fulfilled it, amen? But when does it say it would happen? In the middle of the last week. If a week is seven years long, when does the middle occur? Three and a half. When did Jesus make that ultimate sacrifice? Three and a half years into his ministry. There's a reason he started his ministry at the point that he did, because he knew he had a schedule to keep, yes? So through, you would find this fascinating. People would come to arrest Jesus throughout his ministry, and he would say, like, no, no, thank you, not now. Which I'd love to use that sometime. <laughs> I need to pull you over. No, no, that's not, it's, my time has not yet come, right? <laughs> but he would literally say, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Jesus had this guy. And you know what's amazing? They would say, he spoke with so much authority, we just let him go. <laughs> great. But he would literally say, no, 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 no. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. Boy, by the way, he even told this to his mom. Remember? At the very beginning of his ministry, 
He had a schedule. He was going to do this and then this and this. That the wedding at Cana came up. And she says, you know, they've run out of their uh, special beverage there, Jesus. Hint, hint. He'd never done a miracle, but she knows he's the son of God, right? And he says, woman, again, very politely, my time has not yet come. By the way, he does it anyway, but then he sneaks away privately because he honors his mother and father, yes? So he does an honorable thing, but he doesn't openly declare the beginning of his ministry yet because his time has not yet come. Jesus operates on time. And the time is found in this 490 or this 70-week prophecy. In the middle of the week, and by the way, you can read the supporting text, but we understand this process. You've already told me about it, but the Scripture bears this out, that he did begin his ministry on time. Galatians says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. There was a schedule for when he was born. There was a schedule for when he was going to begin his ministry. There was a schedule for when he was going to die, and he knew about it because he was a student of God's Word. In the middle of the week, he should bring an end to sacrifice. Then we go continuing chapters 9 of Daniel, verses 26 and 27, still in our study guide here. And the people of the prince who is to come, now by the way, that's not a reference to Jesus. He's here referred to as the Messiah, right? But the prince who is to come, the people of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. What people destroyed the sanctuary? The Romans. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now that sounds a little bit complicated, but you know what's fascinating? Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks about this particular thing. Go to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to close with this. If you recall the context of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is at the close of his ministry. Is on earthly ministry here. And he goes to the temple one last time. And Matthew chapter 23 is filled with what are called the woes on the Pharisees. And he concludes that saying, your house is left to you in what condition? Desolate. And he says, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the last time you see me. <laughs> All of the services of this beautiful temple were pointing forward to me, and when I show up, you reject me. You had 490 years. Or at this point, he's just a few years shy. It's, he's in that deep into that middle of the last week. He says, your house is left to you desolate. His disciples turn his attention. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of what? The temple. It's like, are you sure? Look at it again. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
he's looking towards the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, that he knows after he is cut off, the prince, the people of the prince of that time will destroy that city. He said, your hope is in the temple. Your hope is in the sanctuary itself. But I am the living sacrifice. You're looking to a building. I'm what that building points to. And if you direct me, the house is left desolate. And trust me, when the people come in, they're going to come in like a flood. Not one stone will be turned upon another. By the way, let me finally actually close with this. When that 70 weeks, at the end of the 69th week, Jesus begins his ministry right on time in the year A.D. 31. I'm sorry, A.D. 27. In the year A.D. 31, Jesus dies on the cross right on time. But there's still three and a half years to go. Friends, is it possible that the Jewish nation, even after they crucified Christ, had an opportunity to repent and get right for what they had done even to their own Messiah? Yes. Let me give you two scriptures to demonstrate this. Go to Acts chapter 2. You're probably very familiar with this. It's called the Day of Pentecost. But what was the burden of Peter's message? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends not upon Jesus, but this time about Je- on Jesus' disciples. And they preach a powerful message about Jesus. Friends, don't for one moment think the day of Pentecost was about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was simply the way to get the message out about Jesus. Notice Peter says it himself. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Here's the point. Oh, in fact, we'll, we'll back up just a little bit. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God has what? Raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Apparently, the Holy Spirit was being poured out was simply an evidence that Jesus was at the right hand of God. The sermon was about Jesus. In fact, look how he concludes it. Verse 36. Therefore... Let all the house of whom? Israel. Who's he preaching to? All the house of Israel. Know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you did what? Crucified. This is just over a month after the crucifixion of Jesus. 50 days later. It's the day of Pentecost, right? Whom you crucified. He's made him both Lord and Christ. And they asked the question. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart. You know, they weren't in a mob mentality. They weren't yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Now the the dust has settled. Their minds are open, and they're hearing this powerful message inspired by the Holy Spirit that they killed their own Messiah. And they cry out. Notice what they said. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And I'm so glad Peter didn't say, oh, there's nothing you can do. I just wanted to tell you you're lost. What's he say to do? Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of whom? Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What particular sin is he talking about? Killing their own Messiah. And he says that same Messiah you killed is now at the right hand of the Father and he's willing to forgive you. There's still time for you.
3,000 were added to that number that day. The second passage I want to show you comes from Acts chapter 7. It just so happens to come three and a half years later than the crucifixion of Jesus. 34 AD, or the closing of the 70-week prophecy that was given for the Israel people to get right with the Lord. Acts chapter 7, this time it's not the Apostle Peter, this time it's Stephen the deacon. But he's arrested for his faith and he has to give an answer before the tribunal, the Sanhedrin. And by the way, if you ever think some of the preaching that I preach, and you don't think that any of my preaching is sharp and harsh, (laughs) I hope not. But look look what Stephen says, verse 51, speaking to the Jewish leaders who orchestrated the death of Christ. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always do what? Resist the Holy Spirit. What are they committing? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They're resistant. They are committing the unpardonable sin. Not because it can't be pardoned, but they don't want pardon. You are resisting the Holy Spirit. And notice he goes on to say, as your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Same message that Peter said. You have killed your own Christ. The one Daniel told you was coming 490 years ahead of time. You had all this time to get ready. What did you do? When he shows up, you killed him. Now, when the day of Pentecost came, They were all cut to the heart and they repented. Notice carefully the language here of the Jewish leadership. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were what? Let me ask you a question. Were these people convinced and convicted that what Stephen said was true? Absolutely they were. They were cut to the heart the same way the people on the day of Pentecost were. But the difference comes in their response to the conviction. Watch carefully. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. They set their teeth against him. They hardened their hearts. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The same thing that Peter said. He's at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's as if to recall to their minds, remember the experience in the wilderness where all the children of Israel were bitten with serpents and he raised up that serpent on a pole and all they had to do was look and live. Christ had said, I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men unto me. I am that serpent on the stick. I am that thing. Just look to me and live. And here Stephen says to the leadership of the children of Israel, your time is up, but one last chance. Look. Verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him, how? With one accord. By the way, you'd think, oh, the book of Acts is about one accord. That means the disciples, when they repented and came together, yes. When you repent and accept God's word, you're brought into unity. But let me tell you something, Satan, when you reject God's word, will bring you into unity against Christ. Christ said, you're either for me or you're against me. And when the truth comes, how do you respond? 
when the Jewish leaders, the Israelite leaders, the teachers of the law, who knew these prophecies, who executed their own messiahs, then heard the preaching of his representative, close their ears. Sounds like a three-year-old. I have one of those at home. Literally, he's gotten into this habit now. But what does that mean? He doesn't want to hear the rebuke that's coming. So you try to do everything to block it out, to numb that conviction, to deaden that sense. And they shout it, la, 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 I can't hear you. And they ran at him with one accord, bringing to close that 490-year prophecy right on time. Friends, we serve a God who is accurate. And when he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Look at the bottom of your um, study guide as we close. You remember the 70 weeks part was just to give the beginning of the 2300 year part, yes? It talked about the first coming of Jesus. And in 457 B.C., that time clock began so that when Jesus was baptized, it was right on time. When he was crucified, it was right on time. When his representatives were rejected, it was right on time. Then all you have to do is go from 457 B.C. and go 2,300 years into the future and you land at the cleansing of the sanctuary, the time of the judgment just before Jesus' coming. And that year, friends, is 1844. In the year 1844, I believe Christ went from his intercessory work in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, we talked about two nights ago, into his work of judgment when the court was seated and the books were opened, still interceding for our behalf, but now he's making up his kingdom, the rock that will strike the earth is being cut out right now without human hands. That God is doing his final work of intercession. And soon and very soon, we're going to see our king. Let me ask you a question. Has tonight's presentation made sense? Can you raise your hand? Praise God. Let me ask you another question. Has it been a revelation of Jesus Christ? Amen. Amen. Friends, I want you to see from God's word that Jesus is the center of it, that prophecy is nothing to be afraid of, that Jesus is revealed therein, and the same appeal is made to us. Repent and be baptized. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you for giving us your word that reveals him so clearly and so powerfully It demonstrates that your word is trustworthy and that we're living in exciting times. Lord, we understand that since the year 1844, you have been in that final phase of your priestly ministry in the most holy place, that day of atonement, reviewing the books and making up your kingdom, carving out a people for you. Lord, as it has ever been, it still is today, our decisions to whether we're going to be part of that kingdom. Lord, it is my prayer that not one here resists the Holy Spirit, but that everyone who understands this message will not just have it intellectually, but 
even in their very hearts, Lord, convict us of sin, where we've fallen short. Let us afflict our souls even today so that we may be right with you and that we can be part of your kingdom, that when it comes, not one here will be missing. Lord, this is my prayer, and I pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.